Pray with me, please. Father, it is the fact that the Lamb is worthy that brings us together this morning to lift our hearts in worship to the one who is highly exalted, who sits on the throne and who by his work of redemption has bought and purchased us by his blood. So we gather this morning as the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ to worship, to confess, and to come around your word and to be instructed from it. Father, the currents of our culture are fast moving. It would be naive of us to believe that as we endeavor to swim in them that we are not at times susceptible to being moved by them. And so we come this morning to your word to be reoriented, to be transformed, to be renewed, knowing that in coming to it we will need to be changed. And so God, I pray that you would give us hearts this morning that are ready to hear, ready to receive, and ready to put into practice what you have for us. For that, we will need your help, and so we ask for it this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would, to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Since about 2015, the History Channel has been filming a reality survival competition TV series. Each contestant on the show is given a small handful of survival items that they are allowed to take with them before they are then deposited into a remote wilderness somewhere with only a set of cameras with which they will film themselves and their survival adventures. There will be no film crew with them. They are by themselves filming themselves. The, comp- the, the comp- competition is around these contestants competing against others who are also trying to survive. And, and the contest is whoever can be out there the longest, often a period of months and months, will win hundreds of thousands of dollars. But in order to do that, in order to win the prize, they need to be able to thrive and survive in the wilderness. They eat whatever they can forage, whatever they can catch, whatever they can kill. They have to make shelter against what are often brutal conditions and unforgiving, challenging elements. And yet none of those obstacles are the real challenge of the show. It is not the lack of food, It's not the weather, it's not predators, it's not even accidents that send most people home. It's the isolation. The contestants are not camping together, they are spread miles and miles apart from one another. They are removed from all civilization, they are removed from all human interaction, they have no ability to contact loved ones, to interact with them. They are by themselves in the wilderness. As they record themselves in their wrestle to survive and to cope in the wilderness, a common struggle emerges from nearly every contestant on nearly every season of the show. Devastating loneliness. Loneliness is what finally breaks nearly everyone. And it's why the TV show is aptly titled. The show is called Alone. The show is a kind of compelling social experiment that reveals that we are created to be exactly that, social. That even the most self-sufficient and introverted among us are nonetheless designed to function and require fellowship and community. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, we come face to face with a man who is alone. Not alone as in he is 
pretty far away, far removed from his nearest neighbor. Not alone is in he hasn't had interaction with other human beings for quite some time. Alone is in he is the only human being on the face of the earth alone. The only human being, not only on the face of the earth, the only human being in the galaxy. The only human being in the cosmos. It doesn't matter how far back you might try to pan the camera, he will still be the only human being. He is alone. But God intervenes on his behalf. And in so doing, God reveals to us his design for our humanity in community. So as we continue our foundation series through the book of Genesis and through the creation narrative, we this morning are going to conclude our three-part mini-series on what it means to be human. So two weeks ago, we looked at our identity and our mission as human beings created in God's image. Last week, we considered our, our roles as gendered beings. And then this week, we're going to focus on marriage and sexuality. So read with me our text in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, before we dive into our text this morning, I'd like to briefly make a comment to those of you who are alone. A passage like the one that is before us this morning can be very hard, can be very difficult for those who are widowed, for those who are divorced, for those who are single. And you need to know this morning that you are in no way less than as a result of your singleness. We are looking this morning at God's perfect design while everything was still very good in the time before the fall. But we live today in a time well after the fall. Things are no longer very good. And so just like our bodies now get sick and they break down in ways that they were not originally intended to, so also our relationships experience brokenness, the brokenness that sin has produced in our world. But because our God is a great God, He can still redeem and use even what is broken in our world in order to greater reveal His glory. So as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, God can use your singleness to great advantage for the sake of the gospel. You may even be uniquely positioned, even in a time and a season of unwanted singleness, for precisely what God would have for you. 
I wish I could say more on that. I actually originally had more in this sermon about both divorce and singleness. I cut more out of this sermon than I have cut from any sermon I have ever written before. So I'm not going to be spending any more time on those things. I want to focus this morning on what the text focuses on, which is the creation of the marriage uh, covenant. So that is going to be the focus of our time this morning. My hope will be to address both divorce and singleness a bit more on the podcast this week, God willing. And so with all of that said, let's now turn our attention to the focus of our passage. And here is the first truth that emerges from it. We were not created to exist alone. The first hint that we are given of that fact actually comes to us back in chapter 1. Remember, after fashioning the man and woman in his image, we read in Genesis 1.28 that they are then commanded by God to be fruitful and to multiply. And implicit then in the mission and the purpose for humanity is this idea of growing community, expanding community. First, because in order to multiply, there will need to be two of them to begin with. And second, because these original two are not simply to multiply, but they are to multiply to such an extent that they and their offspring and their offspring after them will fill the whole earth. And so there is this idea of this growing, expanded community. In other words, the mission that is given to mankind is no kind of solo mission. It is a mission that requires community. But the second hint that we are given, that man is not created to exist alone, isn't really a hint at all. It's more of a blunt statement of fact. I mean, sometimes when we are working and in interpreting the Scriptures, we actually have to really wrestle with an interpretation of Scriptures, and we have to use some advanced hermeneutics and exegesis, and we really have to spend some time really digging into our word studies. And then there are other times where the text says something like this. Then God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, what does that mean? It's not good that the man should be alone, says God. I will make him a helper fit for him. Up to this point, everything that we've read in Genesis is that everything is good. After each creation day, it is good. God saw that it is good, that it was good, that it was good. It is not then until this moment that we come to the first and only negative assessment of creation. It's prior to the fall, the only time that we read that there is something in the created world that is not good. And it is when God looks and identifies the aloneness of Adam. There is something that is wanting in Adam, something that Adam needs that he cannot satisfy in himself. To think through that, we need to remember that Adam is a creation of the triune God, the God who existed in the unity of his Godhead and in the community of his personhood from eternity past. He is one God in three persons. And so Adam, made in the image of this God, is created as a relational being who is meant to live in and enjoy community. There is something that is connected even to Adam's image-bearing nature that is incomplete and is unfinished while he still exists alone. So before God can pronounce his creation very good at the end of day six, God first has to resolve what he identifies as not good in the middle of day six. But while God has decisively identified and rendered his verdict on Adam's condition, Adam is not yet aware of his need. How can Adam appreciate the lack of something that he has never experienced, something that he has never had? How can he even know what it is to be alone when he has never experienced fellowship with another? So while God has already determined 
Adam's need and determined to meet Adam's need, God will first gently and graciously make Adam aware of his need. So we read in verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Genesis 2, 19 through 20 depicts what I think is an incredible kind of royal ceremony that's taking place. Just imagine what this scene must have looked like in the creation. God takes the man who he's made in his image, and then in front of this man, God parades all of the living creatures. And I say that this is a kind of royal ceremony because Adam is here acting as the vice regent of God. Someone made in God's image who God is giving, gifting, delegating authority over creation in the prerogative and privilege of being able to name all of the living creatures. We looked at last week, there is authority that is vested in the ability to name things. It reveals Adam's comprehensive authority as God's vice regent over creation. And every creature is therefore presented by the creator to the man and receives from the lips of Adam what will be its name. Every wild creature is immediately domesticated by the righteous rule of the image-bearing man. But we discussed a couple of weeks ago how each aspect of creation is designed to complement each other, including that each kind comes with others of its kind who complement them. And if we can observe that in the text, surely Adam could have observed that when they were standing before his face. He surely would have noticed that each creature had another of its kind that complemented it. None were alone. So imagine then Adam suddenly coming to the realization, this dawning new thought, that while each of these creatures is paired with another, that he alone stands alone. And perhaps he stood there, naming these animals, hoping that at the end of this procession of creatures, that one would emerge who was like him, who was fit for him. Not another animal, an image-bearer like himself. But the creatures have finally all passed, each one of its kind, by him. Each one has received from him its name, and there is not another to be found who is like him. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And suddenly, for the first time, Adam realizes that he is alone. God has already passed the verdict that this status is not good for Adam. But like the loving father that he is, God has gently and graciously made Adam conscious of this need. This will be the first of Adam's lessons about the God with whom he has to deal. That this God sees him. That this God knows him. That this God loves him and cares for him and that this God provides for him. We are not created to exist alone. Which leads then to the second truth that emerges from our text, the way in which God resolves this aloneness. Marriage is God's design for our good. As we consider that truth, I'd like to make three supporting observations with you. Here's the first. Marriage reflects a beautiful complementarity. We introduced that word last week, this idea that 
complementing relationships and the roles of men and women. I want to look a little bit more specifically about what those complementing roles look like specifically in marriage. So first observe that Eve is created in response to Adam's need. He is alone. That status is not good in God's eyes. And then Adam observes this need, but notice Adam can do nothing to meet that need. Adam can simply realize that he's alone. He can do nothing about that reality. But fortunately for Adam, God chooses to intervene on his behalf. But as we noted last week, God's response is not simply to duplicate his original creation. He does not create another Adam. Adam does not need a brother. Adam needs a wife. Now certainly, if mankind is going to be able to be fruitful and multiply, then this other person, this new person, will need to be biologically different and compatible with Adam. That is important. But she is not simply created in order to meet a biological need that Adam has. God doesn't even give the command to be fruitful and to multiply until after he has created the woman. God, in fact, starts by saying that the reason that he creates is going to create this woman is because it is not good that the man is alone. That's the motivating reason for the creation of the woman. The complementing nature of the man and the woman is not just simply the sexual compatibility of their bodies. It is that, but it is certainly much more than just that. It is also how they are intellectually and emotionally and spiritually designed to form community together. Someone who with her body and with her mind and with her soul and with her emotions and with her very way of seeing the world will uniquely complement and complete him. And to that end, observe second that Eve is created for Adam and from Adam as the helper that he needed. In verse 18, God says that he will make a helper fit for Adam. In verse 20, Adam discovers that there is not a helper fit for him. God then creates the woman from the man and for the man. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians. and He says that the created woman is for and from the man. 1 Corinthians 11 8 through 9, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now we might bristle at that thought. We might bristle at a verse like that. Our culture certainly does. But I remind you again that if we resent what God calls good, then we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by the word. Because our culture today argues that the worth of a woman is connected to what she can or cannot do. It's why the feminist movements are so obsessed with constantly breaking and shattering glass ceilings. Because the value of a woman in the mind of culture is what she can or cannot do. So in order to raise the value of woman, we must raise the bar of what she is allowed or is not allowed to do. But the Bible does not tie the worth of the woman to what she does. The Bible ties the worth of the woman to who she is as an image bearer of her God. In the same way, the Bible does not tie the worth of the man to what he does, to what he is able to do or unable to do, but rather ties his value to who he is as someone made in the image of his God. And so in marriage, both spouses are equal in worth and value and in dignity, but they are distinct in their role and in their function. So what then does it mean for the wife in her function, in her role, to be the helper for the man, for her husband? The term helper or ezer 
is most often used throughout the Old Testament in one of two different ways. Either in a military setting, such as the help that is provided when reinforcements arrive in order to prevent a force from being overwhelmed by an enemy that's come against them, so providing, uh, bringing support and strength at a needed moment in time, the help in a military context. Or the term is also frequently used in relation to God himself. That God is the helper of his people. That he is the helper of Israel. Now, if this word can be used of God, does this word communicate anything about worth and value? If helping is not beneath the dignity of God, then it is certainly not beneath the dignity of wives who bear his image. To be a helper, then, is not a position in any way of inferiority or of weakness. Clearly, in the Old Testament, the idea of being a helper is a position of providing needed support and strength. That is what it means to be a helper. Let me give you a dramatic example of what this can look like in a marriage. On the morning of September 11, 2001, Liz Glick was visiting with her mother. They were watching together in horror as their TV was filled with the images of planes crashing into the Twin Towers. As they were watching the horror that was unfolding on their TV screens, Liz's phone rang. It was her husband, Jeremy. He was a former national judo champion, and he was the love of her life. That morning, he was also on Flight 93. He was calling to tell his wife that his plane had just been hijacked. Jeremy told his wife that a man named Todd Beamers and some others were discussing whether they should rush the cockpit and fight off the hijackers. But he told his wife, Liz, that he was unsure of what to do. He told her he wasn't sure if that was the right thing. He was doubting himself. He asked her what she thought he must do. As Liz and her mother watched their TV, they realized that those hijackers had no intention, no matter what they might say, of ever landing that plane. The hijackers were quite literally hell-bent on taking more innocent lives. Liz's mom turned to her daughter and said, Liz, make him brave. You must make him brave. And so Liz turned back to the phone and she said, Jeremy, I think you need to do it. You are strong, you are brave, and I love you. Moments later, a group of passengers led by Todd Beamers and Jeremy Glick overwhelmed the hijacked cockpit of Flight 93, sending the plane down into a field and saving countless lives. Jeremy needed to be a man to use every ounce of force and of strength and of courage and of bravery that God had given to him in order to protect innocent life. Jeremy needed to be a man. But to do that, he needed Liz. He needed his helpmeet to help him, to strengthen him to be who he needed to be and to strengthen him to do what he needed to do. And so he rushed the cockpit. But let's be clear about this. The help that a wife provides is a mission that requires tremendous strength 
and dignity and courage and sacrifice. And that's true, by the way, in moments of dramatic heroism, and it is true in moments of the daily struggle of life. Moments where it is just a husband and wife facing the world together, facing the daily struggles of living in a fallen world. The role of being a helper is a noble and a high calling. Second observation, marriage is God's creation. It's not man's. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We notice here that in the decisive moments as God seeks to meet Adam's need, that Adam does absolutely nothing about it. He's asleep. It is God who is the one who is acting and forming this new marriage covenant that he is creating. Observe with me two things here that God does. First, he forms the woman from the side of Adam, which means that they are kind of kind. They are same of same. Among all of the living creatures that had been paraded in front of Adam, there was not one who was fit for him. But to make clear to Adam the fittedness of this new helper that he had made, God forms her from his very side. And when Adam opens his eyes, when he wakes up and he sees her, he immediately recognizes that she is from him and therefore she is for him. And the enthusiasm of his expression is lost somewhat in our English translations. He, he really exclaims here, at last, finally, here is finally bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He is overwhelmed with joy and excitement and enthusiasm to meet his bride. And he calls her woman because she is from him. She is like him. The Hebrew word here that Adam uses for man is the word ish. And he calls her Isha. She is the uh to his ish, whatever that means. <laughs> Adam enthusiastically, joyfully, passionately recognizes that God has formed this woman to complete him. But second, notice that God presents the woman to the man. In verse 22, God forms the woman and then he escorts her to the man. He presents the bride to the bridegroom. Now most, if not all of you, have attended a wedding before, probably multiple weddings. When I officiate a wedding ceremony, usually I'm standing here at the front. The groom is standing here with me. The bridal party processes in. They each take their places on either side of us. And then there's a pause, a pregnant pause, a moment of breathless waiting and anticipation. And then suddenly the music fills the room. The mother of the bride rises, and then everyone rises to their feet, and they turn to see who is coming down the aisle, and there is the bride. Most often, she is being escorted down the aisle by her father or some other significant man in her life. And when they finally have come down the aisle and they stop in front of the groom, I will ask the father, who presents this woman? Who brings her to be married to this man? 
The structure of that service is not arbitrary. It is grounded here in Genesis chapter 2. Because the moment of expectant waiting for the bride to appear has now passed. She is here. And it is God at this first wedding ceremony in human history who escorts the bride to meet the groom. Now, normally at this part of a wedding, after the bride has been escorted to meet the groom, there will be a charge and a marriage blessing that will be spoken as part of the ceremony over the couple. I believe that it is at this precise moment that the charge and blessing of Genesis 128 is spoken over this couple. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And after this, you almost expect to hear, and Adam, you may kiss your bride. God creates, he institutes, and he officiates the first wedding, the first marriage, the covenant joining of two into one. Which leads to the third observation about God's design of marriage for our good. That is this, sexuality is a good gift within the confines of the marriage covenant. What is the result of this marriage? What is its seal? Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and will hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The two become one flesh. They become one. Sexual intimacy is the seal of the one flesh covenant of marriage. The physical bodies of the man and the woman have been designed by God distinctly and uniquely, but they have been designed to beautifully come together. And in that coming together, they form a one flesh union of vulnerable intimacy, exposure, and trust that is designed to seal the covenant or the promise of the marriage. The one flesh uniting of the marriage bed, the husband and wife each come to know and to be known in a way that is intended to form exclusivity and lifelong permanence of the union. It is an unreserved giving of oneself to the other in a way that removes all barriers, all illusions, and offers oneself honestly and entirely to the other. And in that joining together, there is this glorious and mysterious sense in which the individuality of the spouses, though not lost entirely, is somehow superseded by a God-appointed unity. That in God's sight, these two become one flesh. And that seals, it provides the permanence and exclusivity and the sacredness of this union. It's not some kind of social contract. It is a sacred covenant that is formed. As Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 6, quoting at the beginning here from Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. Here's what Jesus remarks on that. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God stands over and above the marriage covenant as its author and as its designer. He ordains it, he approves it, he witnesses it, and he establishes it. In marriage, a bride and a groom may 
choose to marry one another by their own will, but it is ultimately God who joins them together and who makes them one in His sight. And that oneness is sealed by the coming together of the male and the female body in a way that physically enacts the covenant that they have entered into. By God's good design, this sexual intercourse within marriage is designed to accomplish three things. First, procreation. They are created to multiply, to fill the earth. The incredible design of God for sex within marriage means that in the coming together, the two become one, and yet in the two becoming one, they can become many. Isn't that amazing? The two become one in God's sight, and in their becoming one, they become many. And that ability is not incidental to the marriage covenant or to sex as it's designed. It's foundational. It's central. The first recorded words that God says to the married couple are, be fruitful and multiply. Now, we need to acknowledge, as we've already said about other things this morning, that as a result of the fall and of the curse, we now live in a world in which there are barren wombs. There are marriages that cannot produce children physically cannot, no matter how much they might desire otherwise. That doesn't mean that those marriages are less than. It doesn't mean that those marriages are inferior. It's important that we understand that. But our world has become less than. And our bodies have become less than. Less than God's intent for them because of the effects of the curse in our world. But that does not change the fact that it is the sexual union of the male and female body alone, distinct and yet designed to complement and join and be fruitful together, that can satisfy God's procreative design for marriage and for sexuality. That union alone can accomplish what God ordained as right. Second, sex within marriage is for intimacy. There is a vulnerability and an honesty the mutual knowing that results from the coming together and the giving of oneself to another in this way. It not only physically, but emotionally and even spiritually binds and knits together the two into a oneness that is at once physical and yet exceeds the physical. This is the great tragedy of the casual sex hookup culture that we live in today. It's the great tragedy of pornography. It's the great tragedy of infidelity. The view that our world has embraced about sexuality is entirely selfish. Entirely selfish. It asks only what I can get. It demands only what I can receive, what I can be satisfied and gratified by. It is not interested in any way. It, in fact, avoids commitment. It avoids knowing. It avoids vulnerability. In consequence, our bodies become something like commodities, things that we buy and sell in order to receive some kind of physical gratification. And that's it. That's all we're looking for. Sexuality becomes transactional. Makes sex into a trivial thing, a cheap thing, a common thing. But sex was created to bind the husband and the wife intimately together for life. Tim Keller says this, Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively 
to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. Third, sex within marriage was created for pleasure. We must not lose sight of the fact that while sexuality within marriage is for procreation and it is for intimacy, that it is also for pleasure. It is also for our joy and for our enjoyment. God chose to create it in a way that is designed for each spouse to give pleasure and to delight in the other. We don't have time this morning, but read the Proverbs. Read Song of Songs. Marriage is to be filled with passion and with pleasure according to God's good design. It is a gift that we are meant to enjoy. So sexuality in marriage is for procreation, it is for intimacy, and it is for pleasure. I'd like to make with you a few brief applications as we think about these things, marriage and sexuality in our world that has so entirely lost the vision that God created these things for. Application number one. Sexuality within marriage is a good gift and we should be thankful for it and we should enjoy it. Let's not lose sight of the fa- that fact. Let's celebrate what sexuality is for. I think it's easy in the midst of the sexual chaos, sexual confusion in which we live in today, for the church to to develop a negative theology of sexuality and consequently to cast a negative vision of sexuality. Those things are important, but while we are standing for the truth, let's not lose sight of the truth. That God created sexuality in the context of marriage and he called it very good. So let's celebrate what the Bible is for. And let's also appropriately teach it and celebrate it with our children as they grow. Let's not allow the world to shape our children's perspective on sexuality. Parents, someone is going to shape your child's understanding of the meaning of sex. Someone is going to do it. So let it be you using the word. Application number two, God determines what is good. And for marriage, that means one man and one woman for life. God created, as we've seen, a universe out of nothing by his very word. Which means that in every respect, in its every particular, everything that was created exists precisely in exact accordance to the will of God who then called it very good. There is nothing in creation that God did not decide precisely how he wanted it. God could have created genderless beings. God could have created two Adams, or he could have created two Eves. He could have created an Adam with two or more Eves. He could have created an Eve with two or more Adams. Take whatever permutation you like, God could have done it, but he didn't. God created one man and one woman with bodies that corresponded to the other, and he brought the two of them together for life. And in so doing, God eternally declared, not time and place, not a particular social setting, God eternally declared that by His will, the marriage union is a one man, one woman covenant. That love is love is love is love, as they say. Whatever the permutation or whatever the arrangement or whatever the genders of the couples or perhaps even more people who are involved. Churches today may say that Love is love is love. And there are many churches that are doing exactly that. Churches who are saying, why does it matter if the couples 
are perhaps of the same sex, so long as they are in long-term committed monogamous relationships. Why does it matter? Isn't, in fact, the whole point just so that people are not alone? Isn't that why marriage was created and formed? But brothers and sisters, we are not interested in any of these things. You're interested only in this. What has God said and what has God created and what has God ordained as right? And he's declared by his will, this marriage union, one man, one woman, covenant, exclusive for life. It's created for permanence for as long as they both shall live. Number three, what we do with our bodies matters to God. There are two errors that we can make in the church when we discuss sexuality. The first one is that we can take a casual approach to sexual sin. This is becoming, I think, an increasing problem in the church today, particularly as our culture becomes increasingly sexualized. Some churches are taking a very casual approach to sexual issues in, in that they want to affirm and accept what the culture claims to be right. That perhaps is not so much our problem, but I think maybe we have another one. I think it's easy for us to look at the culture and to condemn the sexual chaos and confusion of our times, but let's also look closely at ourselves and ensure that we are not allowing heterosexual temptations to become acceptable sins in the church. The number of Christian men and women who are enslaved to pornography is astonishing. 70% of Christian men and 30% of Christian women admit to regularly viewing pornography, according to a number of surveys. I've spoken to a number of older pastors who mentioned that they have observed an alarming increase in recent years in the number of Christian couples in premarital counseling who openly admit to sleeping together, to living together before marriage. Some of those pastors have noted that what really shocks them about this is not that these things are happening in increasing number, but the lack of shame and, in fact, the brazenness that these couples express. They don't see anything really wrong with what they're doing. Christian couples, couples who grow up in conservative churches. But the Bible says that what we do with our bodies matters to God. I wish we had time to look there, but Romans chapter 1 intentionally mirrors Genesis chapter 1. And Paul says that God's wrath is coming against the sexually immoral who dishonor their bodies among themselves. There is something about sexual sin that dishonors the good bodies that God has given to us and incites the anger and the wrath of God. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul goes on to warn believers that our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, such that our sexual sin constitutes an offense against our bodies and an offense against the Spirit who dwells inside of us. He says, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. And the New Testament comprehensively makes very clear the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to get in our minds very clear that what we do with our bodies matters to God. And therefore, it matters for our eternal destinies. Our souls are at stake when we discuss these things. Application number four, God can redeem our sexual brokenness and he can redeem broken marriages. I said a moment ago that there are two errors that we can make in regard to sexuality. The second error that we can make is to view sexual sin as somehow uniquely irredeemable. 
I think that this was perhaps an unintended consequence of the purity movement. To make those who fell short, who engaged in sexual sin, to feel as though they had become irredeemable things, that they were now marked, that any future marriage they might have was automatically going to be broken and corrupted. But our God is a God who redeems and restores broken things and broken people. Romans 8 verse 1 proclaims for you and me that there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that being said, in order to experience that no condemnation, we must first turn and repent from sin and actually be in Christ. There is no continuing to pursue the lusts of the flesh and walking in the Spirit at the same time. These things are mutually exclusive from one another. So we cannot marry ongoing sexual sin that we habitually practice with this idea that we are actually in Christ. We need to get that clear. But understanding that, there is no sexual history, there is no relational past, there is no broken marriage that God cannot restore and redeem through the grace and mercy that is offered in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are all sinners, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, which means that we are all debtors to mercy. And debtors to the one who by his mercy and through his son is making all things new, including you and me. As we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with one final application thought from our text about marriage. And that is this. Marriage is not only for our good, but it is for God's glory. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at this word telos, the purpose or the ultimate aim of something. We've seen that Eden has a telos, that our gender has a telos, it has a purpose, is pointing to something. Well, marriage has a telos too. It has a purpose. It is pointing to something greater. Because as we saw in our scripture reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, marriage is the real life metaphor that God uses for his relationship with his people and Christ's relationship with the church. Marriage is created in part to help us see and understand the exclusive covenant love that God has for us. It's why idolatry is so frequently compared to adultery in the Old Testament. Because worshiping other gods is like committing spiritual adultery in the marriage covenant that we have with God. It's why the vow in marriage, forsaking all others, is modeled after the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It is a call to exclusive covenant love. And all throughout the Old Testament, there is this word that keeps getting used again and again to describe this love that God has for his people, his chesed. It's a word that's hard to define. We don't have an exact word that corresponds to it in English that fully captures the concept, but it means something like steadfast love or as I prefer, covenant love. Marriage is the means, it is the embodied metaphor by which we begin to understand something of the chesed love of God for us. The exclusive covenant love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And it is that chesed love for his bride that sends our bridegroom to the cross. Which means that we must have Christ-centered marriages. That the call for Christian marriages is that men are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church so that they are willing to give themselves for their wives as Christ gave himself to redeem his bride. 
that we are together sanctifying one another, that we may be pure and chaste even as Christ has sanctified us to present us chaste before God. It's why we are called to die to self in marriage in the way that Christ has died for us, which means that our marriages, Christian marriages, are to be a visible display of the gospel. It means that our marriages are not just for us. Our marriages, because they are a visible display of the gospel, they are for the sake of the world and they are for the resounding glory of God. The witness of your discipleship will be indelibly connected to the witness of your marriage if you are a Christ follower. And that's why God made the world for his glory. And that's why God made us for his glory. And that's why God made marriage for his glory. And that tells us why the stakes around marriage are as high as they are. And it tells us why the evil one hates marriage. Because it is an embodied metaphor of God's love for his people. And it is a visible representation of the glory of God in the world. So, let's hold high the biblical vision of marriage. For our good and for God's glory. Let's pray. God, we are overwhelmed by the kindness and love that you have lavished on us, that you not only created us in your image, but that in looking upon Adam, you desired to meet his need with a companion that was made for him, suited for him, from and for him, that in so doing, you declared that it is not good for us to be alone. You gave us a foretaste of what fellowship with you looks like in the context of earthly marriage. So God, help us to embody in our marriages the kind of love that Christ has for his bride, the church. Father, for those who are single, God, may they use the singleness that you have given, recognizing that Christ has redeemed their singleness, that they might even use it for great advantage for the sake of the gospel, and that they would realize that they in Christ are not alone but are part of your bride, the church. We thank you for these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.